Welcome to a special Thursday edition of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, where we will be discussing what it means to be a Zionist. Welcome back to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a issue that was brought to my attention, not brought to my attention, but was... uh, sprung upon me in about mid-June when I had the former leadership contender for the Green Party of uh, Canada, Judy Green, on the show, where I had expressed my support for Israel and their right to defend themselves. Um, I I guess if you're not doing, if you're doing something right, you're not going to hear from your, your fans, but I did something wrong according to my fans and I expressed my opinion. And in that I had gotten some comments via social media, via email that I was a quote unquote Zionist. I will be blunt. I did not know what this meant. So being the good journalist I was, I asked my husband who was the best person to have on the show to talk about the state of Israel being a Zionist and what the state of anti-Semitic hate in Canada. And he said one name and only one name. And that is our guest today. And it is Ariel Kimmel. Ariella, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I kind of, I kind of have to laugh although it's like not funny when it's like the worst thing you can ever say is like Israel has the right to defend itself. And like that causes like just an upheaval. It's like the basic tenant of like, they shouldn't have to live under rocket fire is the worst thing anyone could ever say. <laughs> I agree. And I, I, I was taken back by it. And I, I honestly, I, I've tried to do research on this issue. I've tried to learn a little bit and I will be wrong in some of my statements today and I want you to correct them. And that's why you're here. I want you to address what I'm potential potential mistakes I have in my, not my, my, my views, but what, what is the reality? Because as someone who's married to a Jewish man, I believe that I should be supporting my husband and supporting someone right to defend themselves. So thank you so much for doing this once again. And I'm going to ask the first question and it's going to be a loaded question. But what is a Zionist? It is a bit of a loaded question because everyone will define their Zionism in a different way, right? Like, so I am a Zionist. I probably would say I'm a Zionist uh, because I believe that Israel has a right to exist, but also because I believe that the Jews have a right to a homeland. Point blank. That's the end of my statement on it, right? That is, and, you know, everyone puts their own nuances and commentary on it. But the basic tenet of it is that the Jewish people should have a homeland in their indigenous land of Israel. It was it came about, you know, in the 18th, 19th century in Central Europe under when Jews were facing, you know, increasing anti-Semitism. That's when Zionism kind of became an ideology for us, which was we need to get out of Europe. We need to get back to our homeland and live somewhere where we can feel safe. Um, And now it's become this distorted mentality that like if you believe in Zionism, you don't believe in human rights. When really, when you think back to how it was created was so that we could not have to face, you know, the, you know, I think my family that came to Canada, um, you know, one grandmother survived, it was a Holocaust survivor, but the majority came because of the pogroms in Russia. And, you know, that was then maybe Ukraine, depending on where the borders were at the time. Um, and Jews just, and it was happening in Eastern Europe, but even in, you know, places like France and Austria, which were coming into modern, you know, more modern times in, in Central Europe, you were still facing anti-Semitism. So where are we supposed to go? 
when would you say that it became a negative stereotype? Because I, I find that more and more people, and especially in the last month or so, when uh, Israel began defending itself against Gaza and or Hamas, sorry, and the rocket fires that they kept on uh, attacking Israel with, when did uh, Zion being a Zionist become a negative stereotype? Because I think there was a shift because like you said, there was a moment when it was a proud thing to wear, but now it's becoming more of a negative stereotype when people use it in a negative way. So most people will point to, um, in 1975, in November 1975, um, the UN had a resolution come to the floor, which would be called like the Zionism is racism resolution, um, which basically um, uh, said that, that if you are a Zionist, you're a racist. The kind of shift in time, where if you look at the timeline, 1975, you know, you're two years after the Yom Kippur War, which was a major, you know, um, battle. And to be honest, it was a miracle that Israel uh, won, won the war, quote unquote, won it, you know, took a lot of territory um, in that war. And frankly, it's a miracle that the way it panned out, you know, I would tell your viewers to go watch Valley of Tears, which is an Israeli TV show on Amazon Prime, um, because that is a really good show about how the Yom Kippur War happened and why it was such a surprise for Israelis um, and kind of how it played out. And it's just a fantastic TV show. But Israel basically had a surprise war launched on them, should have been decimated and wasn't. And then it kind of turned into this David Goliath story where Israel was, was you know, Goliath and, um, and didn't deserve support. So, you know, in 1975, there was a resolution brought to uh, the floor of the UN and it uh, passed. And it, uh, you know, it did say uh, Zionism is racism. And that's kind of where that came from and where, um, you know, it grew from there. I remember being you know, in the first intifada, you saw it continue. Um, I remember being a university student and like working at tables, uh, you know, for the student Jewish student union and having people come up and tell me that Zionism is racism. And I was like, the basic, again, I go back to the basic tenant, the basic belief, the truth have a right to like live safely and securely in their own homeland is not racist. Um, but the pushback that I've received and the anti-Semitism I faced in my entire life because I'm a Zionist is racism. So it was just like a very like interesting, you know, switch I found. Which, which there's a few things that I want to unpack there because there's a, uh, I, I agree the uh, Israeli people have the right to uh, live in peace and harmony where they are, uh, where they are. Um, but the, the, the most common co uh, comment that I hear, and this is the media narrative that I hear because the left seems to be very high and powerful in the media these days is Palestine is getting killed. The Palestinian people are getting there's a genocide happening among the Palestinian people. Um, I, a, I want you to address that. And from your perspective, but also B. The two state solution that was set up when, if I'm not mistaken, 1945, when Israel was uh, marked by the U.N., if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, so you had a map kind of laid out in 1945 that was never accepted, uh, and then that led to the independence war. So, like, like there's a long history there, but yes, there is a yeah. two-state solution lined up. 
So let's let's start with the first uh, area of the genocide part of these, because I think and, and yet again, wars happen. I, I think everyone has to agree that wars happen. And if you want to call this a genocide, you have to call a lot of other things genocide as well. So what is your yeah. opinion on the narrative that what is happening in uh, the Israel and Palestine? Uh, I don't want to say war, conflict, however you want to address it. How do you say that it's not a genocide? Uh, very easily. Um, I, which is, so using the word genocide is such a loaded term. Like I look, so this is my, my, my most hated thing I've ever dealt with when it comes to this conversation around Israel-Palestine is if you're a Zionist or you're quote unquote pro-Israel, you can't be pro-Palestinian. One does not like you can only be one or the other, which I vehemently disagree with. I can be a Zionist and believe in the right of Israel to exist, but also believe that Palestinians have the right to exist in peace and security in their own homeland, point blank. Like that's my, you know, I will always say that. And I strongly believe it. But, you know, if you just look at like population growth already, it's it's not a, it's not a genocide. Um, it's, you know, the conflict, ongoing conflict is horrific for everybody. Um, you know, you have generations who are growing up with clear with PTSD and, you know, psychological issues from where living in war zones. And I, you know, I point to both sides of, of this, you know, Israeli, Israeli is living in the town of Syria, which is like a small town on the, you know, border with Gaza. Those children are trained that they, you know, have to run to, if they, as soon as they hear a red alert, they're running to a bomb shelter and it's happening frequently to them. So they're growing up with a lot of psychological issues also, where I also, like, I know what's, you know, the Palestinians are growing, growing up in the same type of you know, mentality. Um, it's a con constant understanding that you're living in a, in a war zone and it's, um, you know, nobody wants their children growing up like that. Um, and you know, I can speak personally, I lived in Israel during the rocket wars and now like, I don't actually lived in Israel during the second intifada, um, when there were bus bombings, um, frequently going on. And I do not like crowds. I hate crowds. Like on Canada day, um, when I, like, I grew up in Ottawa, when we would go downtown Ottawa with the fireworks and the crowds, like that is a, a lot for me. And I, you know, only experienced it for a short amount of time. So I just think about what these kids are growing up with. Um, I think that, look, I think Hamas is a terrorist organization that has genocidal views. And if you look at their charter, they're very clearly calling for the destruction of Israel and anybody who sides with, it's not, you can, you can side with, you side, I hate saying their sides, but you can believe that Palestinians have, you know, um, should live in peace and security, which I do, but not support Hamas. Because if you support Hamas in any way, which you find a lot of politicians are doing, especially on the left, I hate to say it, Jeremy Corbyn, um, you are supporting a genocidal organization that wants nothing more than to see the entire Jewish, you know, faith, whether not even just those in Israel, but globally wiped off the map. And um, so Israel does not have that belief about the Palestinians. I think that if you look through history and you go back, you know, you talked about the 1945 two-state solution. Well, if you go back to Yitzhak Rabin and his and the Camp David Accords and the attempt to create a two-state solution there, um, and then, you know, even Ehud uh, Barak's, you know, uh, two-state solutions, there's been constant desire to negotiate. Um, and then you get, and then terrorist organizations, you know, 
there are things that happen on both sides, but rocket wars or intifadas or, you know, um, you know, scrimmages, anything like that ends up blowing them, blowing them up. And, um, I think even now, if you look at like the most recent war, there was a lot of things that set the groundwork for it. Um, but one of them is, you know, the, the fact that at the time, you know, you had negotiations also ongoing for the new Israeli government, which would have, which now does include Arab parties. And that actually hurts the narrative of Hamas and, and what Hamas is trying to do. The, the new government is a very, uh, and I use this word lightly because uh, Israel has gone through about four elections in two years, is a very, very weak minority. They are, they, if one party jumps ship, they are done and they are going off to another election. While it's great that the parties have come together and the narrative for Hamas has changed because now they have a pro-Palestinian or pro-Muslim party in the government. How does that change the narrative of being a Zionist within the world when you have a government now who is now working with a pro-Palestinian, pro-Muslim party? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, Rom and the uh, more left and the other left wing kind of non-Israeli parties will have friction, obviously, with the government that they have joined. Um, But, um, you know, they're going to have to negotiate through it. I don't think it changes my narrative as a Zionist, because I think the biggest issues they're going to end up having is, you know, around things like Jewish settlements in the West Bank, because Naftali Bennett and his party are you know, are the party of, of the settler movement. I will, you know, full disclosure, my family are settlers. Um, they live in a settlement outside of Jerusalem. I have like hundreds, you know, cousins who live there. Um, I have, you know, interest very, like I've lived, I spent ta- a lot of time there, um, including breaking the rules when I was 16, because we weren't allowed to go there because of the Antifada and how unsafe it was. But um, I, I think that, you know, could be very interesting to change the, the kind of narrative around what set, settlers are in the Western media. They're painted as these like right wing vigilantes who like, you know, freedom, you know, fighting all the time. And, and there are there are definitely on these like random outposts on hills, very violent settlers. But I also think that they they completely um, hurt the rest of the movement who are, you know, people like my family who like are not, you know, violent uh, gun wielding settlers there to kill Palestinians. Um, I think that, to be honest, I think that this coalition actually as a Zionist enhances what I say, which is Israel is a multicultural society. And even if you look at their new cabinet, yes, it's a lot, it's, you know, mostly Jews. Um, and you have the, now you have the inclusion of the Muslim of the Arab parties, but like you know you have the first Ethiopian woman. You have uh, you know you have this unique makeup of these parties um, that are that are really interesting. And I think you know to talk about it talks shows the multi uh, you know faceted multiculturalism you know multi faith background of Israel for sure. The. Uh, The flip side to that is within, I would say, probably about four or five days of the new government being sworn in, the new prime minister being sworn in, uh, Hamas began attacking Israel again. 
It did not stop that narrative while it, the narrative might change for hopefully the rest of the world. Hamas still wants to obliterate the Jewish people. And it goes, and I'm going to go back to the same question and is, how do I put this? And yet again, I apologize if I get this wrong here. How, how do we defend Israel in a world where there is so much hate and we'll be getting to the anti-Semitic hate rise in the world and here in Canada when there's, how do we defend Israel when there is so much hate towards Israel whether it be because they are defending themselves, whether attacking uh, Hamas, whether it be bombing buildings, how do we defend Israel in today's society? Because I think that's the biggest thing that I'm having a challenge with is how do I go out there and I start saying, you know what, Israel has the right to defend themselves and not worry about the hate that I get because I got like four emails. I can imagine what people in like your position and my husband's position get all the time. Yeah. So you're not going to not get hate is the problem. So, and it, it is a major problem. Like literally again, saying Israel's the right to defend itself is like a vitriol statement that like will bring along a lot of hate with it. Um, you know, I, I hate Twitter. I hate Twitter so much, but I, you know, I'm on it often. And especially like during like wars, I will go on it and, you know, I'm not, and I, in, you know, do the Twitter stuff. Um, and my mentions will just become like a hate, like just full of hate. And it's reminiscent of, you know, my, like my whole life in high school, being an open Zionist and, you know, it wasn't even actually, sorry, in high school, it was just being a Jew. That was like what made me a target. Um, and is in university being an outspoken Zionist constantly made me a target. Um, you're never not going to be a target for hate if you're open about your support for Israel. And it's sad because it shouldn't be that way. Um, I would say Israel is one of the only countries where if you're vocally supportive of it in public, you get admonished for it, right? Like you don't hear politicians get like beat down for saying like I'm pro-America maybe like under Trump they did but like you know you don't really get that you don't get you know what's wrong like yesterday Jason Kenney put out a statement on the on Independence Day right and in the past he's put one out on um on Yomad's move with his Israeli Independence Day and like the amount of hatred he would get for one and not the other is like miles apart but it's all it's based on Israel so I cannot straight like is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism all the time? No, but there is a very thin line and when and it is very clearly crossed often. So so let's talk about that because I've noticed that in the last month and a half since the last conflict um of the rise of anti-Semitic hate in Canada. We saw it on in full force downtown Toronto uh, when there was a pro-Palestinian uh, crowd. And then there were a few pro-Israel uh, people who attended the rally to voice their support for Israel. And they were chased out. They were beaten. They were chased. They were th rocks were thrown in Canada. Nonetheless, this is not a third world country. And I, I, I I'm probably going to get some hate mail here again. But this is Canada. We have the right to freely express our beliefs. I don't care who you are, unless you're not hurting anyone, you have the right to express your beliefs. 
do you have you seen in the last two three years the rise of anti-Semitic hate in Canada, and what do you chalk that up to? I, I have seen it. Um, uh, I think I'm, I wonder if like in some ways I'm kind of jaded in that I experienced it so heavily in high school. Um, I'm always like, oh, is it, is it rising or is it not? It, I have a hard time like really understanding it. But, you know, last week, B'nai Brist put out a, a news release that basically said like, we originally knew that there was a rise in anti-Semitism in that those few weeks of the last conflict, but like it was, way more than we even thought. They had 154 incidents of harassment, 51 incidents of vandalism, and 61 incidents of, of violence. And you talked about, you know, what happened in Toronto. What about here in Edmonton, where like people were driving around known Jewish neighborhoods asking if Jews lived there. And the same thing was happening up in Thornhill in Toronto. Um, and now there's a new trend on um, that you know, Jewish-owned um, stores are being targeted with bad reviews online. Um, so there's a new gelato, I believe it's like a gelato shop in Toronto. That's actually like an Israeli brand. Um, and people are purposefully going on and giving them bad reviews in order to just, in order to kill their business and because they're Israeli. And don't tell me that's not anti-Semitism. That is anti-Semitism. Like that is very clearly targeting Jews. Um, so I have seen it and I do attribute it to the, you know, um, the anti-Israel movement becoming more and more ingrained in politics, um, especially on the left. Have I seen it on the right? Look, I, I would be wrong if I don't call it out and like, you know, in the party of which I am belong to in the past. Um, like I, I've been a conservative staffer here in Alberta and federally. Do I think that the parties are driven, like have any, no, I do not. I do not. I, I think that when I watch the NDP now, there is an inclusion of anti-Semitism it through the anti-Israel movement. I think there's a difference with the conservative movement, which I'm happy to kind of go further into, but I do think there's also a rise in anti-Semitism on the right um, and a feeling of comfort. Look, you, you had Nazi youth flags flying here like just north of me here in Alberta. Um, and they were very much, it was not called out in the way I would have wanted. Um, and these guys felt free to fly their flags. What about, you know, at the anti-mask rallies, you're seeing um, swastikas and some people wearing yellow stars and comparing it to the Holocaust. Uh, there was once an op-ed comparing, you know, the vaccines to the um uh, experiments done on Jews in concentration camps, the, you know, the Nuremberg chanting at the recent candidate day event that premier was at, um, there is a rise in anti-Semitism on the right as well, but, and, but it's tied differently than the Israel movement, I would say. Which I'll talk about briefly here in a few seconds, but I do have to follow up on that is, um, has the, and yet again, this is going to be the most insensitive question I've ever asked in my the history of this podcast. But has the Holocaust become a joke for people from the right to the left to say, you know what? Hey, there was a there's a woman down in Nashville. And the only reason I, I saw this because I showed it, showed it to Ricardo. There's a woman in Nashville. She wear she works at a Western style uh, company. Like, I think it was a hat store. And she's an anti-masker. She's an anti-vaxxer. And she printed up star of David anti-vaxxers or I'm not vaccinated stars and said, Hey, the Jews did it. So we can do it for this. Has the Holocaust literally become a joke? And if so, how do you as a Jewish woman say, what the fuck is wrong with this world? 
Pardon my French. Uh, it's okay. It is. There, there has been times where I've literally said, so my, my, my grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. She um, came here, uh, actually, she went to the UK um, from Austria. That's how she survived. And the rest of her family didn't. And um, and then she came here, actually, she met my grandfather uh, in the UK and came here as a war bride. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on and on about, you know, what the the trauma of the Holocaust and my grandmother. Um, but one of the things I've, I've sometimes said, and especially in the last few weeks, I said it in, you know, in, during the last conflict, when we were having people drive around Jewish neighborhoods, looking for Jews, I kind of, I said to someone, I'm actually, I love my, I loved my grandmother. She died when I was, I think like eight, I was quite young, but she was such a like vocal part of my upbringing and like her story is really what shapes everything I do in my life um I've written a lot about her in the past and uh you know I've, I said I'm so glad she's not alive because if she saw this I can't imagine the trauma she would be facing again um and that's just so hard for me to think and uh and I would say yeah it has become a joke it's become um everything is comparable um I hate comparisons to Holocaust right like I um, I really do. I make them very rarely. The only time I've, I've ever actually made any type of comparison was, um, Chris Champion and the Dorchester Review tweeted something recently about like kids on a playground at a residential school. And my response was like, this is almost honestly in line with when like the Nazis would take pictures at Theresienstadt of kids playing and send them to the Red Cross and say like, we didn't do anything wrong. And then those kids would be sent to the gas chambers weeks later, right? Like that to me was like, like the only time I've ever kind of made the comparison, you know, genocide is genocide. The term is very much defined and, um, but I hate comparing them and the Holocaust has stopped being a lesson for kids to learn from. Um, there's very few, um, provinces that have like a very set standard of how you teach the Holocaust. Saskatchewan is actually one of the best ones. They have a program called Consensus and they use it um, at a young age. They start teaching the Holocaust, not here's photos of concentration camps, which is like what I learned and definitely was traumatizing, but they teach, use it to teach the bystander effect and how, you know, bullying and good citizenship and human rights, and then move into like, you know, eventually, you know, the trauma and, and the narrative, what happened. It scares me to think that we're moving into generations that will never meet Holocaust survivors. Um, I think of the survivors I grew up with, they were some of the biggest influences in my life. And I know I was lucky to know them and like to be able to share their stories as I, as they pass on. But it does scare me to know that, you know, no, my, you know, my kids likely wouldn't be the Holocaust survivor since they don't have them. And so eventually when I have to born, like they won't meet Holocaust survivors by that time, there won't be any left. And that's, it scares me to know that they could be going into schools and hearing from people well, the Holocaust never happened. How can you prove it now? Um, and I think that the comparisons need to be addressed and stopped and education needs to be better. And, you know, I'll commend even like the Ontario government made an announcement today of giving money to the Simon Wiesenthal Center based in Toronto to help with like training for teachers um, over the summer. So when they go back to school, there's, you know, they have the tools to address this. And I am for one, I'm very grateful for that because I would say the teachers I had had no idea how to address what, what I was dealing with. And some of them, to be honest, 
definitely played a, a bit of not a role, but they allowed it to continue. Um, and so yes, like to go along with it. Yes. I think the Holocaust has become treated as a joke. Um, it breaks my heart. Um, and I don't really know how to fix it without governments taking some real concrete action and, and, um, you know, and making sure that they're implementing not just, you know, virtue signaling, um, resolutions, which I think are fine and dandy, but like real concrete action. Um, you mentioned it there and I want to just jump on it. Um, the, the people who suffered through the Holocaust, who were at the camps, they are dying off now. The ones who survived, they are dying off. So the, the stories aren't there unless they're being told by two your, people like yourself to, uh, I know there's a few resources online through YouTube. You can actually sit down and listen to some of the stories but there's still a narrative out there and there's people, my generation, my generation, I'm 35 and there's people, my generation and a little bit older who took the same schooling that I did. And I learned about uh, the concentration camps and grade 10 history who still don't believe it, who still think it's just a made up story. So it's not a new narrative that this uh, Israel has always faked their, the, the history of why they're there. How do we combat that? Because while you could teach people till they're blue in their face, that face, and I hope that this this show does at least turns one head or turns two heads, because that's what the the purpose of the show is to understand that you know what Israel has the right to defend itself. <laughs> so how do we? And before we get back to the political part, how do we combat that narrative of? And I know you said you, you don't really know how, but I'm going to just keep on asking the question. How do we combat the narrative that, you know what, the Jewish people have gone through some shitty fucking days and with <laughs> with some with the uh, concentration camps, with the constant bombardment from Hamas. How do we combat that narrative that, you know what, Israel's not a bad country. It's not a bad it, they're The people's not bad just let people live their own lives. How do you do that? Is it Israel's a necessity actually. And the funniest part, like, you know, I kind of, at one point, I think I tweeted this out during the last, you know, like you know, scrimmage um, when people, like when we were seeing that uptick in anti-Semitism here, you know, the law, the more you target us on our the streets here in Canada, the more our like need for Israel becomes more apparent, right? Like I, I do, I believe tomorrow I have to pack my stuff up and move to Israel because like the government's going to target us. No, but do I believe that there's a need for Israel to exist because that could happen? Yeah. And, and the generations of people who come to Israel, even after like 1948 are targeted, like our Jews have been targeted in their country. So you, you started by talking about the Holocaust, but like we can go, you know, go back to the pogroms of Russia and I, you know, Canada Day this year, I tweeted something about, you know, how, you know, in the, in the face of everything we're, you know, and in the, in this year in Canada, using it as a, as a chance to reflect what, you know, I am forever grateful for this country existed because it, and opened its doors to my family to come here from Russia and Poland and Ukraine and the pogroms. And then all of a sudden I was being attacked by like these Polish people who were like, oh yeah, just targeting Poland. And I was like, I'm not targeting Poland, but if you are going to start arguing with me about like the like way the Jewish community was treated in Poland, like let's not have that. Um, but Israel, you know, like 
in the 19 for in 1948 to the 1950s the like wave of refugees that came from Iran, Morocco, Egypt, um Iraq like decimated you know Arab Jewish communities that that fled to Israel. Uh I live when I lived in Israel in in 2003 um and when I was 16 the campus I lived on was like we had our school which was like all I was the only Canadian and all Americans but the rest of the campus were like Russians, Ethiopians, a lot of Moroccans and a lot of people from France who were young were like our age, my age, high school kids who parents sent them to Israel because of anti-semitism and eventually their parents like would, the plan was to join them in a lot of cases but it was it was becoming unlivable and especially if you look at France it's continued to this day like the 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 growth of French of the French Jewish community in Israel has has just, just continues to rise because anti-Semitism in that country, they are, they're, they're fleeing. Um, and so you, all you're doing is proving to me that Israel needs to exist. On education, like, I think it's hard to say to me, like, to be honest about it, but I think there's some people's minds are never gonna change. They'll learn it at home. Um, I had to like Palestinian kids in my class who told me the Holocaust didn't happen um, and like, clearly we're learning it at home um you know i white supremacist what my best friend from high school who was my prom date is now a white supremacist am i ever going to change his mind about the holocaust no but there is a need for like you can use i think creating a narrative and coalitions and support networks so when i worked in the jewish community a few years ago one of the things was actually how i met ricardo one of the things i used to do was um uh bring so there's a, a, it's a um, hologram. It's actually really cool technology. It's a hologram of a Holocaust survivor that's been created through the Steven Spielberg network. And they, I don't know if they still have it in Toronto, but they were having Toronto to like beta test it. Um, and so I would bring groups to experience it. Um, and it's one of the survivors from Toronto who's, you know, who's been made into this hologram. Um, and it's actually really cool. But, um, and then at, in Toronto, they have a Holocaust kind of it's a very small but a holocaust museum so for example i brought a group of Ahmadiyya muslims to um to meet max uh and then toured the museum and when we were walking through um they had a um a passport of a jew from the you know from the 1930s 40s and it was stamped with a j because that you had to mark that you were a jew because so you couldn't move freely and uh and this guy came over to me and said you know what Ariella, we have to do that now in Pakistan, Ahmadiyyas have to have their passport stamped saying that they're Ahmadis and it limits their ability and their freedom, right? They are an oppressed minority in Pakistan. Um, and so they saw, you know, similarities or, you know, um, I brought together residential school survivors and Holocaust survivors to share their stories together in a group. Like we had an, a big audience and they were on stage and it was mo moderated and it was a fantastic, it was an amazing event because you start to, you know, it's about finding it was indigenous youth and Jewish youth. And it's about finding these like similarities. Um, and I've done that with a lot of communities. So Rwandans, for example, the Armenians, um, so you're a Ukrainian. So you're building those types of coalitions um, to, to work together. So, you know, I did it even um, once during in Toronto during pride month, I did an event um, with uh, uh, the, um, uh, Rainbow Railroad, I think is what it's called. But they, uh, who were at the time, were trying to help uh, the Chechnyans come. And we had a Syrian, uh, uh, you know, gay man who was from Syria who came as a refugee on the panel 
with a Holocaust survivor. And it was fascinating conversation. So, and the, you know, the Syrian man came to me after and said, I learned my entire life that the Holocaust didn't happen. Like this has been a life-changing experience for me just because of that. So to me, it's just continuing to build, you know, communities and coalitions. And instead of like segregating ourselves, ensuring that we're, we're in the, we're in the conversations. And as much as sometimes on the left, I would say on the left, it's the more difficult side to do that with. Um, because when you bring up the Holocaust, they're like, well, that happened forever. You often get like, that happened a long time ago. What about what happened, what's happening now in Israel? And you're like, but you have to tie the two in together. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to jump back into the political discussion because it is an area that you wanted, we wanted, I wanted to dive into because during our pre-interview, which we had a few days ago, um, I had said that there are people on all sides of the political spectrum who might not be completely 100% uh, pro-Israel. I think there's people on the right, there's people on the left, there's people in the center, whatever the center is today. I don't know what that is, but there is, there are people all over the political spectrum who do not believe that pro-Israel uh, has the right to exist, has the right to be there, has the right to defend themselves. Um, from your perspective, uh, being someone who's worked in both federally and provincial conservative politics, both here in Alberta and Canada, how has the narrative of the conservatives being the most pro-Israel uh, party in Canada been deceptive? Because I, I think you and I will both agree that some members of the conservative party may not be completely pro-Israel. So they, that, that is true. Although I will say like what attracted, what, you know, what brought me into the conservative movement? Like I'm a, I'm a Jew from Ontario. Uh, my mom grew up in Montreal and like, you know, in like the era of like hippieism and um, was like uh, as liberal as they come. Um, like my mom's side, the family is like super liberal. My dad's side is fairly conservative. I, I would say like what initially attracted me into the conservative movement was actually my work with the victims of crime ombudsman, but it like kind of, it grew because I did that in university. But what really was, was Stephen Harper and the support for Israel. And there was no ambiguity. Like under the liberals, you had a lot of ambiguity and, uh, you know, they would abstain on votes at the UN. Would, they didn't, they weren't strong supporters. Um, Stephen Harper changed that. Um, for me, uh, and it made me feel more protected on campus in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I remember bringing John Baird to speak at cam on campus um, about it and just the kind of support we would get. And I would say the first time I actually heard Jason Kenney speak was at a conference in Washington with the American Jewish Committee, which was about anti-Semitism. And just the way he spoke about fighting anti-Semitism, supporting Israel was the reason why I applied to work for him. And I actually, in my interview with my fleet, I started working for him over a decade ago. And in that interview said to him, this is, this is why with that speech, knowing that there were politicians who would stand up and speak for us, that changed me. Um, and, you know, got me really involved in, in politics. And I mean, campus politics already did because I went to a QP, um, a Canadian Federation of Students campus, and we had a lot of issues there um, being pro-Israel. But I will say, and I was very honest, but like I will call out what I think is anti-Semitism within my own party, just like I would call it out on the left. And there was, you know, a post by an MLA here that contained lies, blatant lies about what was going on in Israel. And 
And it wasn't, and to me, that's not innocent. Putting up uh, lies about what is happening in Israel actually fans the flames of hate and creates more anti-Semitism. Um, and I will not be quiet about that um, because the same way I wouldn't do it if like an MLA on the from the NDP, and frankly, I did say stuff about some of them too, who were vocally supporting, you know, supporting Palestine, but really supporting Hamas. Like I would vocally say that as well. Um, but the expectation on to me is not you have to buy the Israeli flag, but the expectation is that you have to have a nuanced understand view where you understand what you're saying. And you know, there were a few MLAs who made comments. I would say um, some of them just felt like they had to say something to say something. And that actually made me more angry. It's like, you you actually don't have to comment. Um, and that's what happens like in this world, like because of Twitter and so, like social media in general, people were like, well, we have to speak up. And I actually got in a kind of back and forth on Twitter with someone who I'm, friend, like, I'm friendly with. Um, and she was tweeting about, you know, you said I can't remember what she said, but it basically had a lot of misconceptions in them. And I tweeted back to correct her, and she was kind of started tweeting, and we were like going into a bit of back and forth. And I, you know, said it, tweeting out misconceptions causes a rise in anti-Semitism. If you don't understand the issue, then you shouldn't be tweeting about it. And she messaged me separately, and she was like, "You're making me look like an anti-Semite." And I was like, "Well, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it is a duck, right?" Like. It, I'm not making you look like an anti-Semite. What you're doing is, again, fanning the flames of hate. If you don't understand the issue, if you've never lived there, if you don't have, a, I would say, skin in the game, be quiet. Like, why do you have to comment about it? You don't. And it's like that, that people feel the need to. And what makes me more angry about kind of someone within the own part, like I, you know, I don't work there anymore, but, you know, a party I worked for is that it was like, it was almost like I have to say something so that made to like appease voters. And it's like, if you feel the need to fan the flames of anti-Semitism to you to, to get voters then like, let's have a conversation about how problematic that is. Um, I want to ask you a question uh, as a Jewish woman, the recent comments by uh, the now Green Party, uh, now Liberal Party of Canada MP from Fredericton, Jenica, Jenica Atwin, if I'm not if I'm pronouncing her name right. She was very pro-Palestine during the recent uh, scuffle. Uh, and then when she joined the Liberals, now she's very much not. Um, what is your opinion on the, and I use uh, the uh, flip-floppers, like that, the ones who will try to gain the political system to appease the pro-Israel parties, the pro-Israel demographics to try to advance their political career. What's your opinions on people like that? Yeah, that made me really angry um, that she was able to cross the floor and then like denounced her what she what she said kind of and uh you know to appease people um i would say that the liberal party as much you know erwin is is still involved and um you know i'm glad they gave him a role and i believe he's like right now in israel with mark garneau um and has you know is taking a lead on combating anti-semitism and 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 i i erwin is actually the first uh, mp i worked for in ottawa um uh so I have, and I have all the respect in the world for him, but the liberal party is no longer the party of Erwin Cutler. Um, I think it's to stop being 
so much so under Michael Ignatieff and then kept kind of like moving itself to the left um, as it has now. Um, it upsets me because it's um, how the liberals were okay with it, you know, bringing her in and then letting her just, you know, just kidding guys. It's it, I didn't mean it uh, just to keep her, it really was to keep her seat and, you know, to be a pawn in the game of taking down anime and, um, you know, I remember talking to boss at the time when, when she won, when uh, leadership and I said, I'm never going to vote green, uh, frankly, um, quite obviously, but, um, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like I like to be a young, you know, a young Jewish woman to get to see a young, a black Jewish woman, you know, become a leader of party. It's seeing yourself in politics and it's very rare nowadays for us to get that opportunity. Um, and I just, you know, I said, my niece lives in the States. Um, but, you know, I just said, you know, she's five and I want her to believe she can be absolutely anything she wants to be. Um, and seeing someone like anime become leader sends that message to us. Now watching them try and take her down because she's a Zionist, because she has the audacity to believe that Israel has right to exist is so heartbreaking um, and so difficult to watch and painful. And then to have the liberals like kind of, you know, placate it and like get involved really like what bothers me most is it won't harm them no one's going to care right it's it's just anti-semitism and that's what really like i've come to believe is that no one is going to actively speak up about anti-semitism and uh it's just um it's so it's so painful to understand that like no one it's no one's going to be on our side in many ways on our side, but you can be an anti-Semite in politics and it's not going to, it's not going to stop your rise in any way. Um, we'll start wrapping up here because I'm just cautious of time here and I want to make sure that you get onto your rest of your day that you have to do. Um, what's the biggest misconception about Israel today that is floating around? Uh, that it's a genocidal state that wants to wipe the Palestinians off the map. I think that's like the biggest misconception and the misconception of how Israel itself exists, right? Like, um, you know, no one, if you've never been there and you just read the news or Twitter, or you believe it's like this separate society, um, you know, that there's no coexistence and there is like one of the most amazing things about Israel is the coexistence and the like grassroots organizing on the ground to build relationships. So, you know, you have the hand in hand school in Jerusalem, which is mixed Arabs and Jews. Um, you know, one of the, my, one of the charities I've gotten to spend you know time at in when I'm there is save a child's heart, which is a, um, it's the most amazing program ever. They bring in kids from, you know, third world countries in Africa and Asia, um, and perform heart, uh, you know, life-saving heart surgery on them. Um, and they bring doctors from those, often they'll bring doctors from those places to train them. Um, but they also bring in Palestinians from Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and they also uh, have treated, I believe from Jordan, I think they bring kids from Egypt. Um, so they, you know, so already this is like an amazing program that is entirely, you know, it's um, grassroots organized. Um, and then they operate out of the hospital in Halon, which is a very multicultural city just outside of Tel Aviv. And so the doctors and nurses working together on this program are mixed Arabs and Jews. So you have mixed, you know, Arabs and Jews saving the lives of Palestinian babies 
And I think with, you know, the Palestinians, when they come, they bring a family member or two and they get to experience what it's like in Israel. And it creates this like, you know, this coexistence that, you know, like I think breaks the narrative that we all hate each other. Um, and I think those programs and acknowledging those programs and, you know, seeing them are what's the most important um, because otherwise it terrifies, it actually terrifies me that kids, you know, I think about what my experience was like in high school. I think it's only gotten worse. And that here in Canada, people don't understand that it coexistence. Um, and so it's just a, a vitriol hatred. Um, so that's, you know, I would say one of the biggest thing, um, you know, misconceptions. I wasn't going to ask this question, but I'm going to anyway, because uh, it's a narrative out there that I have seen while I was researching for this episode, while I was reading some uh, interviews, that not all Jewish people believe that Israel has the right to exist. There is a, and I, and I, I, I'm, I apologize if I get the name of the, uh, the group wrong, the Orthodox Jewish. The Dutrich Carta. Oh, thank you. I apologize. Who believe that Israel should not exist. Um, how do we, how do we, how do we ensure that that voice is heard, but also not taken completely serious because it does have the right to exist? So there's two sides. So there's, there is a more like uh, within, I would say the, the far left, there is a growing you know, Jewish community young jews who will say they're not anti will say they are anti-zionist but not that they don't believe Israel's right to exist like there's a lot of nuance there with them um that you know actually when i went to carlton university the three guys who started students against israeli apartheid were jews that i had grown up with and i was like like what? Um, but uh, the, so the thing with the Nutri Carta and the kind of ultra orthodox movement that you see is kind of like the uh, the photo ops of the people. Like these are Jews that don't believe that Israel's right to exist. Their narrative is that Israel, modern Israel, doesn't have a right to exist. This modern country that has a democracy and freedom of religion, and you know, uh, you know, that the LGBTQ community lives in, you know, freedom and prosperity and uh, doesn't worry every day about um, like they would in Iran about being arrested and hung, right? Like, like that, they, these the like human rights that exist in Israel, that modern democracy shouldn't exist is their problem. What they, what they want is they was biblical Israel, right? Like that is what they, believe in um and you do have communities actually of these ultra orthodox who live in israel live off the welfare of the state of israel because they don't work and still believe it shouldn't exist so when you're an ultra orthodox jew who's used in a photo op with the uh iranian prime minister at a cartoon competition uh denying the holocaust like you have no validity in this conversation and you shouldn't um people give them validity because they look like exactly like the stereotypical jews that you think that they're supposed to look like so they must be real but really it's it's their what they actually believe is far worse than what anyone talks about and that's one thing that i've been seeing a lot of the ultra orthodox and i apologize for not pronouncing the name the other name correctly that you've just said but 
they have been used in Canada as well. There seems to be more and more, and I, you, you see them uh, if there's a pro-Palestinian uh, movement or a uh, protest, they are there as well. And in surprise, surprise, they are on the front page of the newspaper with the Palestinian groups. And yes. uh, yet again, I'm not saying the narrative note of the media knows how to create a narrative, but they certainly do know how to create a narrative for some things. Um, how, how do you feel safe in a society where parts of your own faith, your own religion, your own people want to not have you exist, but also part of the world doesn't want to have you exist as well. How do you feel safe in today's society? I, I don't. I mean, I, like, I do. Like, I love Canada. I am the luckiest. I always feel incredibly lucky that this is the place that my grandparents, great-grandparents came as refugees. I know how fortunate I am, but I strongly, like, Every day, I believe more and more in the need for Israel to exist because of what we're seeing. And, you know, in Toronto, um, there was a there's a movement that has um, billboards and um, and bus ads about combating anti-Semitism. And last week I saw something, you know, somebody in Times Square put something up that just said, we're just 75 years since the gas chambers. So no, a billboard calling out anti-Semitism isn't an overreaction. You didn't like it when we didn't defend ourselves and you don't like it when we do. So this doesn't leave us much wiggle, wiggle room. And that was like the most, honestly, that was like exactly how I feel about this. Like, I don't, I feel safer now than I did in high school. And I kind of joke a lot you know, my parents sent me in the second half of grade 11, I convinced my parents to let me go live in Israel at 16 year old, you know, young girl, essentially by myself, like in an organized program, but by myself, I didn't know my family there at the time. It was really my first time ever meeting them. Um, because it felt safer to live in Israel during the Intifada than it did being in the high school I was in. The incidents had just become so constant and so, you know, I actually started to reach a point of violence that it was uh, like, it was almost, it gave me a break. Like buses exploding outside of my dorm room were like the, you know, were what I took over what was happening in high school. Um, do I, I don't experience that to the extent now, but I know what exists out there. And I, you know, as we talked about, it terrifies me that in the next few years, we won't have Holocaust survivors. And I think it actually will get worse and worse on both the left and the right because of that. What would you say to the young Jewish child in a Canadian high school today who is struggling the same way that you struggled? And you mentioned it a bit throughout the interview that you struggled during your times in high school in Ontario. Uh, that's why you went to Israel for the remainder of your high school career. What would you say to them who are struggling the same way that you struggled? And how would you address them to get not get over, but get through the next few years or the next few months of their uh, high school career? So I actually started publicly talking about high, like what happened to me in high school uh, and like the extent of it because of the recent rise. Um, it was from day one. Uh, I started, I went to Jewish day school until grade 10. When I walked into, you know, public school in grade 10, I was wearing a Star David and a, a girl came over to me and she said, my name is Kaya. And I said, Kaya, she said, yeah, and I was like, that's an interesting name. She says C-H-A-Y-A, and I, that's my sister's middle name, Kaya. And she's like, no, Kaya. And um, and she basically pointed my star David and said, I wouldn't 
wear that. Um, and this was also the year of 9-11. So within my first week of public school, 9-11 happened. I remember hearing kids in my class like the day it happened, um, talking about how the Jews did it. Uh, I went, my high school was right in front of my home. So I would go before I had any friends, uh, I would go home at lunch all the time. And I went home at lunch, my sister on 9-11, my sister called. And I just remember you don't, don't you dare go back to school. Don't, don't go back to school, stay home. Like she was afraid of what was going to happen. Um, you know, they started carving death of the Jews on my desk regularly. Uh, I remember like some very anti-Semitic comments just like made in the classroom. And then there was one incident, uh, it was around the Intifada. It was when I was in grade 10, um, where a kid came up to me and said, do you, um, have, do people bother you that much because you're Jewish? And Jerson was like, I believe he was Colombian. Like he wasn't, I like had no skin in this game either. And I said, yes, uh, they do, but you know, uh, most people don't. And, uh, he said, well, just wait. And what I found out from a friend of his, who was actually Palestinian. So this makes the whole story, like the art, like the art within this, like kind of, you know, ironic, but also shows that like, you know, hate, hate has boundaries. Um, I found out that his plan was when I walked into the cafeteria that day, he was going to come running at me, uh, pretending to be a suicide bomber. And, uh, we found out like ahead of time, reported to the principal and by the next day he was suspended. He like then started calling media and making himself into like a sob story, how he wasn't really, it was a joke and he couldn't believe he was suspended. And why was he, why was he facing, you know, repercussions for his actions? He was, I remember watching him on CTV news, talking about it. And then the news truck started showing up at school, like, because I think what they saw this as was a micro cause, you know, a micro, you know, uh, cause him of like what was happening in Israel happening here in Ottawa, like, you know, like the, the conflict there coming here. And, uh, they showed up at my house and they showed up at school. Um, I refused to talk to them. And, uh, and then it, then it became a bigger thing in school, uh, that why was Jerson suspended? He was just a joke. And then the reactions towards me became even worse. Like even my friends stopped talking to me. Uh, I was really bullied to the point that I went home and one day after school and tried to kill myself because it was just awful. And, uh, what I would say to the kids going through this is like, you will like what's happening in like any kid getting bullied in high school, high school is the worst. Like it is the worst and you will go on in life and you will find your place that you belong. And, you know, for me, when I was at university, becoming a leader in like the Jewish student movement and getting actively engaged and taking, you know, getting involved in politics, um, for you, for them, it might be something else. Um, but you will find the place where you, where you belong and where people, um, and you will learn what, what good people are. Um, I'm really, I have this, because of this, I'm so grateful for Ontario's announcement today because through all of this what my teachers reactions were were not supportive they were not to help like educate I remember like the first time death the Jews was carved in my desk my teacher told me to just move seats um you know I did have one great teacher who when he um when a kid uh, wrote Hitler should have killed you all on one of the desks, he made the kids stand down and paint every desk in the classroom. And then he had me sit in the class with him and explain my grandmother's story. Um, so I will always love Mr. Mason for that. Like he was one of the few who really stepped in. 
Um, I had a teacher who once a student made a comment about how all Jews are rich, who basically validated the comment. Um, so to know like the action taken today by Ontario actually for what happened to me gives me hope that at least teachers will be properly trained to uh, help students through this because uh, anti-Semitism is, is a form of hate and a form of bullying. And we all know the repercussions of bullying on someone's life for the rest of their life. Do you hear these stories from your friends as well? No. So I was, this was, so in high school, uh, the way, it, you know, this, the um, kind of zones were created in Ottawa, I was actually one of, I was the only one from my elementary school, my Jewish day school that went to this high school. Um, it was predominantly uh, um, uh, new immigrants, uh, a lot of, uh, from a lot of Palestinians, a lot of Lebanese, a lot of Somalians, um, and, but most of the kids that I grew up with lived in a different neighborhood. So they all went to different schools um, and where they were actually most of the Jewish community went. So they, I think some of them faced some issues, but none of them, it was like a constant in my life in high school. Um, so obviously when they went, it was interesting when they went to university because when they started to experience anti-Semitism, it like, it threw them off. They had never dealt with it before. I, I asked this question just out of my own curiosity, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, if you could do it all again, would you have gone to Israel sooner? Uh, if I could do it all again, I would have uh, not gone to that high school. I would have um, done my older sister actually had transferred to a, a different high school. Um, and uh, my decision to go to Woodruff High School was because I wanted to go to a different high school than my sister. We're only a year apart. I love her. Maybe she'll listen to this, but, uh, you know, I didn't want to be Leora Kimmel's sister. Um, I just didn't. I, and, uh, and so I made the decision to go to a different high school. Um, I would have gone, I would have stayed in Canada. Like I don't, going to Israel sooner wasn't really an option. It was a very specific program, um, where you're, you're there for six months. Um, but I would have, I would have gone to a different high school um, because I do think that um, that experience has shaped the way my life ways. And I think um, for good or for better or for worse, and I, I think there could have been better. Perfect. Um, well, not perfect, but thank you. Um, <laughs> Ariella, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I feel like we've just scratched the surface and I appreciate your time and sitting down and talking about this because it is an important discussion that needs to be had. And I hope that even if one person listens and changes their mind about uh, the rise of anti-Semitic hate is most importantly and the true definition of Zionism as the, my first question was. So thank you so much, Ariella, for doing this. Thanks for you to you for doing this, to be honest, like um, allowing this conversation to happen and, and like for to be like for, you know, kind of getting the getting hit with it and wanting to learn more. I think that just speaks volumes to, to what you're doing. So I, I really appreciate it. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced, edited by Miranda Brown Associates Incorporated.